So I've known Chris um, for a few years in relationship around the city of Pittsburgh, church ministry life here in the city. It's kind of a small community. Um, I think it's worth mentioning that you have, in my opinion, an excellent pastor. I'm pr thank you for that. Yeah. Um, he's, I have found Chris to be one of the most thoughtful and humble leaders that I know. Um, and I, I love how much he loves Swissvale and this community and this church. Um, and I share that simply because I think oftentimes people who attend a church don't know what other people around the city think of their pastors. And yeah, Chris is a great, great pastor. Um, so this morning we're going to be spending our time and we're going to be focusing our conversation that's found in an the Old Testament book of Exodus. It's in chapter 17, and it begins in verse 8. So if you've brought a Bible, if you have a digital device with a Bible app on it, I'm going to be reading from the NIV translation, but it's Exodus chapter 17, starting in verse 8. Now, just to place this story for you, God has already called Moses to travel into Egypt and confront Pharaoh. And demand that Pharaoh set God's people, the Israelites, free. God's already brought ten plagues against Pharaoh and the Egyptian people. The first nine resulting in Pharaoh hardening his heart. And the tenth finally breaking Pharaoh. Who releases the Israelite people from their 400 years of oppression and enslavement. God has rescued the Israelites from the Egyptian army by parting the Red Sea. And now the Israelites are in the desert beginning their life as a free and liberated people. And God has just provided food by raining manna down from heaven. And then he has provided water from a rock. When we find the Israelites in Exodus 17 verse 8, they're continuing to travel through the desert on their way to Mount Sinai. And our story for today, it's the story of the Israelite people being attacked by a group of people known as the Amalekites, where a man named Joshua rises up to lead the Israelite army, and where Moses will stand on a hill overlooking the battle while two people, Aaron and Hur, hold up his arms. And through this story, we'll see the ways that God defends and protects his people, even when they're weak and vulnerable, even when they're incapable of defending themselves. The story begins in verse 8. The Amalekites came and attacked the Israelites at Rephidim. Moses said to Joshua, choose some of our men and go out to fight the Amalekites. Tomorrow I will stand on top of the hill with the staff of God in my hands. So Joshua fought the Amalekites as Moses had ordered, and Moses, Aaron, and Hur went to the top of the hill. As long as Moses held up his hands, the Israelites were winning, but whenever he lowered his hands, the Amalekites were winning. When Moses' hands grew tired, they took a stone and put it under him, and he sat on it. Aaron and Hur held his hands up, one on one side, one on the other. 
so that his hands remained steady till sunset. So Joshua overcame the Amalekite army with the sword. Then the Lord said to Moses, Write this on a scroll as something to be remembered, and make sure that Joshua hears it, because I will completely blot out the name of Amalek from under heaven. Moses built an altar and called it, The Lord is my banner. He said, Because hands were lifted up against the throne of the Lord, the Lord will be at war against the Amalekites from generation to generation. The story begins with the author of Exodus in a rather matter-of-fact manner stating that the Amalekites attacked the Israelites. Now, while we likely don't recognize the Amalekite people by name, the original audience of the book of Exodus would have absolutely and immediately recognized who the Amalekites were. And that's because the Amalekites are a people the Israelites will come up against multiple times throughout their history. Because for some reason, the Amalekites seem particularly interested in seeing the Israelite people annihilated. And what adds intrigue to the story is that the Amalekites and the Israelites are family. The Amalekites trace their lineage back to a person named Amalek. Amalek was the son of a man named Esau. Esau is the older brother of Jacob, and Jacob is the forefather of the Israelites. Esau and Jacob's story is told in the Old Testament book of Genesis. When Esau and Jacob's father, Isaac, who was the son of Abraham, was dying, Jacob cheated Esau out of his rightful inheritance. The story is found in Genesis chapter 27. There, after Jacob has deceitfully stolen Esau's blessing, we hear Esau quite literally begging his father for another blessing. But instead, this is what Isaac speaks to Esau. Isaac says, your dwelling will be away from the earth's richness, away from the dew of heaven above. You will live by the sword, and you will serve your brother. But when you grow restless, you will throw his yoke from off your neck. And then the author of Genesis tells us this. Esau held a grudge against Jacob because of the blessing his father had given him. The Amalekites then, by the time we get to Exodus 17, have become exactly what Isaac prophesied Esau and his descendants would become. They're desert dwellers. They're nomadic people. They're violent. And quite literally, people who live by the sword. And whether intentional or not, these Amalekites, hundreds of years removed from their forefather Esau, are following through and acting on the grudge that Esau held against Jacob and all of his descendants. And we learn in the book of Deuteronomy that the Amalekites' attack on the Israelites was particularly evil. There, the author of Deuteronomy tells us this. Remember what the Amalekites did to you, Israel. 
along the way when you came out of Egypt. When you were weary and worn out, they met you on your journey and attacked all who were lagging behind. They had no fear of God. The author of Deuteronomy is reminding the Israelite people that this attack recorded in Exodus 17, it happened when the Israelites had already been wandering in the desert for a few months, when they were tired and worn out. That at their most vulnerable point, that's when the Amalekites attacked them. And not just attack them, but the Amalekites targeted the weakest and most vulnerable people amongst the Israelites. Women and children, the elderly, those with physical impairments and ailments, those who were lagging behind. It's in response to this unprovoked attack that Moses instructs a person named Joshua to gather some of Israel's men together and to go fight the Amalekites. And Joshua does as Moses commands. He gathers a group of men and the next day leads them into battle. And as Joshua leads the Israelite army into battle, Moses, we're told, heads to the top of a hill overlooking the battlefield and holds up his hands. And in his hands, we're told, he holds the staff of God. This staff is the same staff that God gave to Moses prior to sending Moses to confront Pharaoh for the first time. It's the staff that Moses threw down on the ground in front of Pharaoh that turned into a snake. It's the staff that he held in his hands for the first, second, third, seventh, eighth, and ninth plagues. It's the staff that Moses held in his hands when God parted the Red Sea, and it's the staff that Moses used earlier in chapter 17 to hit a rock out of which water came for the thirsty Israelite people. In other words, the staff that Moses takes with him onto the hill and holds up in the air is an object that God has used in numerous ways to perform mighty and miraculous works on behalf of his people. It's a staff that seems to bear the presence and power of God himself. Which is why we're told that when Moses holds his arms and the staff up, the Israelite army performs well in battle. And when Moses' arms grow tired and the staff is lowered, the Israelite army performs poorly. In the end, we're told that Joshua and the Israelite army defeat the Amalekites. But the author of Exodus doesn't simply say that Joshua defeated the Amalekites. The author of Exodus includes a surprising detail. This is how it's recorded in verse 13. So Joshua overcame the Amalekite army with the sword. In essence, the Amalekites, who Isaac, all the way back in Genesis, says will become a people who will live by the sword, are now a people who are defeated 
by the sword. It's a moment that foreshadows another moment, hundreds of years in the future, a moment that doesn't take place in a desert, but rather in a garden. In the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 26, we see the moment that Jesus, on the night he was betrayed by Judas, is approached and arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane. There, we're told that Peter, one of Jesus' closest followers, takes his sword and strikes the servant of the high priest, cutting off his ear. And that's when we hear Jesus turn to Peter and rebuke him. Jesus says this to Peter, Put your sword back in its place, for all who draw the sword will die by the sword. Do you think I cannot call on my father? And he will at once put at my disposal more than twelve legions of angels? But how then would the scriptures be fulfilled that say, it must happen this way? For all who draw the sword will die or be defeated by the sword. The Amalekites are a people who draw the sword and they become a people who are defeated by the sword. But what intrigues me the most about this moment recorded by Matthew and its inner relationship with our story in Exodus is when Jesus says, Do you think I cannot call on my Father? And he will at once put at my disposal more than twelve legions of angels. But how then would the scriptures be fulfilled that say it must happen in this way? In other words, Jesus doesn't need Peter's sword. If Jesus had wanted to, he could have called on his father and God would have sent 12 legions of angels to fight on Jesus' behalf. In one sense, it's a very powerful statement. Jesus teaches Peter and us that our weapons are not what ultimately protect us. But in another sense, it's an absolutely confounding statement, at least to me. Because angels are spiritual beings. And the authorities that stood before Jesus and arrested him were very real physical beings. How then would 12 legions of angels have been able to physically defeat a physical army in a battle? Unless, of course, Jesus understands that somehow God's angels, his spiritual warriors, are capable of engaging and defeating an army comprised of real physical people. Unless Jesus understands that somehow the very real opposition that stands in front of us, the very real opposition that frustrates us, that seems intent on defeating us, will not ultimately be defeated through physical means alone. It's worth noting that Jesus gives a specific reason that he doesn't call on his Father. And it's because Jesus knows what God's redemptive plan and purpose in this moment is. 
Yes, he's being arrested. And yes, there's about to be a very real trial where Jesus will be beaten and humiliated. But Jesus understands that what is happening is necessary for God to complete his redemptive plan. Jesus knows that he's supposed to die. Jesus knows that he's supposed to sacrifice himself. And we know that Jesus knows that because immediately prior to being arrested, Jesus had been in the garden praying and asking God, is there any other way for me to rescue everyone than to be arrested and put on trial and murdered? Jesus asked, can I do this in any other way? And God clearly said no. And so rather than call on 12 legions of angels, Jesus allows himself to be arrested. Because only by being arrested and murdered could he achieve the forgiveness of our sins. It's only by not calling on the 12 legions of angels that Jesus will be able to defeat sin and death once and for all. But here in Exodus, we're at a very different part of God's redemptive story. Here, God has just set his people free from oppression and slavery in Egypt. He's just delivered them from the Red Sea. He's just provided manna from the sky and water from a rock in order to care for his traumatized people. And now, when the Amalekites come up against his people, he's ready to defend and protect them. Because we're at a very different part of the story. We're at a very different part of God's redemptive plan. In order for the story of Jesus in the garden to happen, God has to defend and protect his people from the Amalekites. And so God works supernaturally through the staff that Moses holds in his hands to defeat the Amalekites, a very real physical army. And he does this because God defends and protects his people especially when they are weak and vulnerable because nothing and no one will thwart God's plan of redemption. God will work out his redemptive plan in and through our lives. He will complete the good work in our lives that he has started. But what does all of this mean for us today? What does this story in Exodus have to say for us in the places that we live? The things that we face in our own lives, in our own neighborhoods, and in our own families? I think this. Many of us feel weak and vulnerable. We're tired and exhausted. We're weary and worn out. And hope is hard to come by. We're two years into a global pandemic. We've endured so much social and political strife. We're struggling to pay our bills and feed our families. We're struggling with our mental and spiritual and emotional health. I can speak from experience that trying to raise a young family in the midst of a pandemic is really hard. 
the past few weeks. I don't know about you, but I've felt this heaviness and darkness in particular ways. About 10 days ago, Marquise Campbell, a 15-year-old student at Oliver Citywide Academy, a school in my neighborhood, just minutes from where our church gathers, was shot while sitting in a school van shortly before his school's dismissal time. He died a few hours later. That same night, Rachel Dowden, a 28-year-old woman, was shot by a man whom she had a protection from abuse order against. She was shot while standing at a bus stop in Bellevue, just northwest of our community. Then, two days later, there was a fight at Brashear High School near Mount Washington that so badly injured a student that they were sent to the hospital. And news reports indicated that the child who was injured and sent to the hospital had already been attacked four times that school year. Marquise and Rachel should be alive today. That student who was sent to the hospital should have been able to go to school and know they'd be safe. And then this week, almost as a physical representation of what so many of us have been feeling, a bridge collapses. And I don't know about you, but it's all felt like a little too much to carry. A little too much to try to make sense of. A little too much to try to push through. Many children in my neighborhood and neighborhoods across our city can't go to school and know they'll be safe. And now, we can't even walk or drive over a bridge without wondering if it's in good enough condition to support us. This is not the world as, it's ought, as it ought to be. The Amalekites attacking the most weak and vulnerable of the Israelite people, that's not the world as it ought to be either. The Israelites and the Amalekites are supposed to be family. This moment in the desert should have been a reunion, not a battle where they kill each other. And yet this won't be the only time the Amalekites come against the Israelites. In fact, over time, they become a constant and pervasive threat to the Israelites. For example, there's a well-known story in the Old Testament book of Esther. It tells a story of a man named Haman who concocts a plan to exterminate the Jewish people. And if not for Esther's courage, Haman's plan would have succeeded. And all of the Jewish people would have been annihilated. Haman, he's an Amalekite. Over time, the Amalekites, along with the Egyptians and Babylonians, proved to be an ongoing and relentless menace to the Israelites. They become, in a sense, a representation of evil opposition to God's people and God's work in and through his people to bring his people to himself. 
there are even Jewish people today who understood the Nazis in Germany to be, in a spiritual sense, a modern embodiment of the Amalekites. And while I'm not usually someone who likes to spiritualize stories, I'll do it this morning. Because the Old Testament authors do it, and the Israelites do it, and even Jewish people today do it. Our story in Exodus, the Amalekites represent a type of spiritual opposition to God's ongoing work in and through his people. And so I think we can read this story and try to make sense of it in a very personal way, especially when, if you're like me right now, you need hope to cling to. What is coming against you right now? What opposition are you facing? And I don't mean your annoying neighbor or your difficult co-worker or the fact that you don't like a particular political leader. I'm not talking about annoyances or inconveniences or things that we simply don't like. I'm talking about the things that threaten God's work in our lives. The things that cause us to doubt God's goodness. The things that cause us to struggle to believe that God is faithful. That cause us to question if God is even real because the darkness is so thick we can't see beyond it. When we are at our weakest and most vulnerable, God defends and protects us. Because God will not allow his work of redemption in us and through us God will not allow his work to draw each one of us to himself individually and as a community of people to be thwarted. Right now, no matter what you are facing or enduring or carrying, God is at work to defend and protect you. Just as God protected and defended the amount the Israelites against the Amalekites, so he will protect us from all that comes against us. There will still be fights. I mean, Joshua led the Israelite army in a very real battle on that day. There will still be struggles and challenges and moments when we don't know how we'll survive to the next day. There will be moments where the darkness is so thick and palpable that we'll be convinced it will overtake us. But God, he'll defend and protect us, especially when we're weak and vulnerable, especially when we're surrounded by darkness and hope is hard to find. I wish I could leave you with a few very tangible action steps. A spiritual self-help book of sorts on how to overcome the opposition that we encounter whenever we encounter opposition in our lives. But at least for me, 
There are times when I don't need a self-help book or a how-to manual. There are times where I just need to be reminded of who God is and what his unchanging character is. Places where I just need to be reminded of God's faithfulness and presence. Where I need to be reminded that ultimately he still is more powerful than anything we face or endure. And so, even though it is bad modern preaching to not leave you with a few steps, instead I'd like to leave you with an encouragement that's found in the New Testament book, Romans. This is how it reads. I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing to the glory that will be revealed in us. We know that the creation has been groaning, as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Not only so, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we await our adoption to sonship and the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. But hope that is seen is no hope at all. Who hopes for what they already have? But if we hope for what we do not yet have, we wait for it patiently. In the same way, the Spirit helps us when we are weak. We know that in all things God works together for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. What then shall we say in response to these things? to the opposition we face. If God is for us, who can be against us? In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loves us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for these stories because they create moments and opportunities for us to be reminded of who you are, what your character is. Create space for us to, in the midst of our own struggles and in the midst of the opposition we each face, to be reminded of the fact that the Israelites could not defend themselves, but you did it. And that just as you defended your people thousands of years ago, you still defend your people today. You fight for your people today. So Father, might we cling to hope? And might we cling to hope because of you and your son, Jesus, who overcame the world in sin and death so that we could too. Father, we love you and pray in Jesus' name. Amen.